All right, you want me to read the thing? Yeah, why don't you uh, go ahead and read the thing? Just up the river from Green Bay, Wisconsin, is a small museum occupying what was once a Catholic church. It's easy to miss, tucked away in a residential neighborhood of small businesses, pickup trucks, and split-level ranch homes with lush green lawns. There's a wishing well out front and an American flag flapping over the front yard, and it's been recently repainted in tasteful shades of tan and cream. The only unusual aspect of the museum, from the street, is a sign which points left and reads, Mass Grave. The cemetery out back, although large, is likewise innocuous, a chain-link fence containing acres of carefully mown grass and granite headstones from the late 19th century. A few shrubs soften the chain-link, and there are bright splashes of flowers here and there. If you make your way to the back, you'll come across what looks like an empty family plot, surrounded by knee-high cast-iron fencing, with a stone wall and a large white cross at the far end. Here the shrubs form a well-trimmed border, and a pair of beech trees throw the grass into dappled shade. A nearby plaque informs you that you are standing at the final resting place of 350 unidentified men, women, and children who, along with every other person buried in this cemetery, all died within hours of each other on the night of October 8, 1871. Welcome to Peshtigo, Wisconsin, the scene of the deadliest wildfire in American history. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, president of the Fire Tornado Management Department here at Relative Disasters Corporation. And I'm her brother Greg, chair of historical conflagration studies here at Relative Disasters University. Thank you for that terrifying story, Ella. What? So this is one of those things where being that the loss of life was so mm-hmm. high, you feel like this is something that should be wedged in the national consciousness, and right? And it's just but not. But it's not. Yeah. And tell me why it's not, because this is part of the most interesting thing about this. Well, the date that we just gave you, uh, October 8th. 1871 might strike a chord, yeah. especially if you're living in the Midwest. And that's because it's or, you know, Chicago. <laughs> the night <laughs> of the Great Chicago Fire. Not to downplay, because the Great Chicago Fire killed, you know, around 300 people, destroyed about nine square kilometers of the city, made more than 100,000 residents homeless. Mm-hmm. Like, that that's a huge fire. Huge. yeah. The Peshtigo Fire killed maybe as many as 3,000. This is bananas at how much greater in scale. Over a million acres. Like, just... Yeah, it's... So we're going to have to dig into this one. You know, on one (laughs) hand, like, the Chicago fire is almost easier to understand because there are lots of survivors. There's lots of eyewitness. There's lots of, like, damage that can be photographed and looked at. The Peshtigo fire happens on a scale that's almost hard to get your mind around. Like you just said it was over a million acres. Yeah. That's larger than the state of Delaware. It's one and a half Rhode Island. Yes. It's an ima- a <laughs> massive, massive amount of land consumed in the fire. And the damage, even though it's spread out over that land, is equivalent to the damage, the value of the damage in uh, Chicago. Sure. Uh, the difference between the Great Chicago Fire and the Great Peshtigo Fire is really in loss of life. Yeah, I mean, entire towns were consumed in this. We'll get into what happened, but you just have to imagine a Delaware-sized fire that yeah. kills <laughs> yeah. so many people. <laughs> there almost aren't enough witnesses to really say there were people here. It was just complete destruction. But let's not start with the complete destruction. If we look at the macro picture, uh, here in the U.S., especially in the western half of the U.S., we have a lot of things that make wildfires really happy. And the Peshtigo fire is a wildfire. Uh, So I thought it would be useful just to look look at it from the angle of just a really big wildfire. What we have in the U.S. is huge forests. We have lots of vegetation. Uh, We have hot summers that can also be very dry. And we also enjoy a rich 
variety of ignition sources, including lightning yes. and my favorite, human activity. Uh, I'm thinking here of yep. the forest fire that started last summer near San Bernardino, where fireworks yes. at a gender reveal party caught the brush on fire and started a wildfire that burned for over two months. Yeah. But really... And that's just one <laughs> of the California fires. I mean, there are the, dozens yeah. and dozens, and a lot of them do really have some strange and interesting causes. We're going to gloss over that right now. Um, and just say yeah. fires start from all kinds of human activity. Uh, cigarettes, trash burns, campfires, and yep. of course, you know, arson. Arson. Uh, but the biggest arsonist of all... Greg is Mother Nature. Do you like that segue? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Excellent segue. Thanks. Uh, so the U.S. Forest Service estimates that 44% of the wildfires in the western U.S. were caused not by gender reveal parties, but by lightning strikes. Which I can I can get. If you've got a forest that's in drought conditions mm -hmm. and then lightning strikes... You're basically throwing lit matches into tinderboxes anyway. It's just that the tinderbox happens to be the size of Delaware. Right. And the fires that start from lightning strikes, they tend to last longer yeah. and they tend to burn more acres. And I kind of get right. into the what the U.S. Forest Service current thinking on wildfires is because it's pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. They really see wildfires as just a normal part of a forest life cycle. Yeah. And the current philosophy is if they're not in an area where they're gonna get out of control or where they are going to threaten human habitation. Human life. They just yep. let them burn. Let yeah. them burn. Yeah. Because which is which is the fire management strategy that had been employed on the continent for you know hundreds and hundreds of years before settlers arrived. Right. The First Nations people that lived in that area of the United States, they would they would start small fires to burn up, you know, the tinder have there. They're called controlled burns, and they're actually an incredibly effective way of managing forest fires. Right. So some burn damage is actually necessary to keep plants healthy. Uh, they do things like kill exactly. disease, they clean out insects, and ash and charcoal yep. also return carbon and nutrients to the soil, which helps establish new growths. And I read this, this blew my mind. Some plants actually depend on fires to help them germinate. <laughs> they can't yeah. have babies without yeah. a wildfire. There, there's, the, there's a species of, I can't remember which tree it is, but it's one of the cone it drops mm -hmm. cones, and the cones really only open up in the extreme heats that you get in a fire. That seems like kind of a bad design. <laughs> I don't want to judge. <laughs> I did not design the pine tree, but we're actually going to talk about white pine, which is similar in that yeah. it does very well after a fire, and they yeah. love to be on fire. They actually are really flammable. <laughs> Like, even as a live tree, they excrete a flammable resin, they shed flammable needles, they keep their needles, like, right <laughs> close to them. Burn me! <laughs> these are like the masochists of the tree kingdom. Right, right, right. Even their pine cones, they have these, like, skinny, sticky pine cones. They're not only okay. super easy to set on fire, but they emit creosote, which is a sticky residue in the smoke yeah, that is also yeah, yeah. super flammable. Oh so God. they're like... Great fire starters for like a campfire, but you would not ever want to have them in your stove because they will set your chimney on fire. Yes, that that creosote causes chimney fires, folks. Public, Public service, service announcement. For We're gonna have a few of those that, here. Uh, relative to <laughs> fire <disaster>. safety. <laughs> so you know, actually, white pines are so flammable; they practically burst into fire on their own when they get dry. Don't plant them by your house. PSA, 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 and really don't try to use them That's for indoor Christmas trees. A surprising number of oh Christmas gosh. trees burst into flame uh, over the holiday season. Oh my goodness. Okay, so you mentioned um, <laughs> that Native people have been in this area for a long time. And actually one of the densest white pine forests in North America is pretty intimately linked to the Native Americans who were living there as early as 2000 BCE. Okay. And this is in upper Wisconsin, lower Michigan. So it's kind of on the western side of... Lake Michigan. It's like off Green Bay, the area that we're talking about. Oh, okay. Are we talking about the Ojibwe then? Yeah, or we're talking about the Menominee. <laughs> the Menominee and the Ojibwe are there. Uh, hey! There are a lot of other. <laughs> there are a lot of other nations uh, still there today. The Ho Chunk. Yeah. The those are the ones we're focusing on now. The Menominee with this okay. uh, with this story. The Menominee. Menominee. Okay. Yeah. 
so it was certainly a wilderness at that time. Uh, but I don't want to imply that nobody was living there because that was kind of the thinking that right. the settlers were used when they were expanding westward. And it's just not true. Like there's evidence that Native Americans were living there as early as 2000 BCE and they were doing things. Yeah. They were mining copper. They had religion. They were building earth mounds and they were farming. Yeah. They were planting corn uh, to support their settlements as early as 1000 yeah. BCE. So these were not like nomadic communities. These were people living in no. settlements. They were, these were cultivating settled, yeah. corn and rice. They were building huge earth mounds. One of their descendant tribes is the Menemone Nation, who have lived in this area for so long that they don't have an arrival story. So culturally, when their stories go back, they just have always been there, which I thought was really fascinating. That's so cool. Isn't that cool? So in 1619, the French ruin everything by arriving in the area <laughs> and beginning to trade fur. And they're there for okay. 100 years. The British kicked them out in 1750 and set up a copper mine yep. before the Americans take over following the revolution. The Americans aren't into fur or copper. They take one look at this white pine forest and decide that they're going to go full onceler and chop it all down to make the needs. Excellent, excellent Lorax <laughs> reference. Thank you. I Yay. worked really hard on that. Well done. <laughs> so in 1838, the first sawmill goes up on the Peshtigo River. And around the same time, the Menemone and the Ojibwe and the other Native American tribes in the area who, you know, remember, had been living there for the past 3,000 <laughs> years. <laughs> Are like, um, why are you in my house? They're forced onto yeah. these tiny reservations to the west of town. Yeah. So the town of Peshtigo grows up around the lumber mill, which soon expands to include a woodwork factory that produces things like broom handles, clothespins. People at this time in the 1850s need a lot of like specialized buckets and pails. Yep. Yep. Half of what they produced were things like paint pails and little tubs for washing babies. Okay. They just have a really bizarre catalog. The, okay. I mean, if you just need small bucket-like <laughs> things, I guess that's what you're doing. The point is everything they produce is made out of wood. Their big seller is matchsticks. Huh. Can I take a two-second Menominee sidebar here? We are up to 1870, and we're going to segue into uh, what the town of Peshtigo was like. So this is the perfect spot for a Menominee Sidebar. Okay. Go for it. Uh, for those of you who enjoy the naming conventions of Wisconsin, you can thank the Menominee, which is where we get Oshkosh, named after one of their chiefs, and a number of other towns that that have names from the Menominee, which are not uh, the Menominee is the Ojibwe word for them. They call themselves the Mamakata. Is that the wild rice people? As with most names for people for themselves, it simply means the people. Nice. The Ojibwe word for them is Manumini, meaning the wild rice people, because the Menemini cultivated wild rice. They had a reputation historically as a peaceful, friendly, and welcoming nation. Mm -hmm. Other cultures repeatedly over the time that they were there moved into their territories and they just sort of shared and were like hey welcome have some rice all of that ended when the united states took everything over and the tribe was actually terminated in the 1960s but they're back they brought their case all the way to the united states supreme court mm -hmm. they regained federal recognition in 1973 that must be so weird the reservation was reestablished in 1975 right now the menominee have a population just below 9,000 people, and their language is an Algonquin language, and it is so endangered that as few as 39 people still speak it as their first language. Oh, man. And only around 65 people total, 65 people on the planet have learned enough of it to teach it to others. Uh, they're doing some things to try to save the language. Uh, they're teaching it. Uh, it's it, Language classes are available mm -hmm. available at preschool, high school, and adult levels, including you can take classes in it at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. Cool. I have to say I love, love, love the idea of preschools being taught. That just warms my heart, learning names of things in Algonquin. It's pretty great. It's so, pretty great. Anyway, all right. So those of you who live out in the Wisconsin area, uh, enjoy enjoy your names that were given to you by the Menominee people. Back to Pishtigo. 
Which may or may not be a, a, a menemone word. They literally for? don't know where it came from. The, the it's similar ed- to the word for snapping turtle. The, and- it's similar to the word the, the 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 word for snapping turtle, a phrase meaning passing through a marsh, or an Ojibwe word that has to do with a, a river that has wild geese in it. I bet it's a pun. It's probably is. <laughs> it's like why there are so many rivers Avon in uh, in in Britain because that's the that's the old Celtic Gaelic word for river. So when the Romans were walking through, they were like, "What's that named?" And they'd just be like, "River." River. <laughs> they'd be like, "Oh, okay." That's why there's like nine river Avons in Britain. Anyway, okay. That's so funny. Okay. Back to the Peshtigo. All right. <laughs> So by 1870, the town is thriving. There are 1,750 people living in the town proper. They've got the full complement of hotels and saloons. They're building a new church. There is a drama club. This is how far these guys have gotten. There's a drama club sponsored by the Good Templars. And they even have a newspaper, which they share with Marinette, which is the next town over. Cool. Now, although they have a telegraph line, there is not any kind of real road leading into Peshtigo. So most traffic is still using the river to come and go. Okay. Oh, wow. What a what a change of thinking. <laughs> I know. Right? You're like, oh, you don't drive to Peshtigo. You, you just take your boat. You can't get there. You can't wow. get there from here. Okay. Uh, so it's it's isolated. It's, you know, it's a little town. It's taking off. It's definitely the settlers who live there definitely see it as a frontier town, kind of okay. on the edge of the wilderness, um, because it's just incredibly inconvenient to get to the next town over. Okay. Most of the traffic is using the river to come and go, but the mill and the factory are doing so well. Uh, actually, at this point, with all those baby tubs and matchsticks, it's sure. the biggest woodwork factory in the state and one of the largest in the country. Huh. There's like a small gauge railroad that kind of takes things around town and I think can like get down to the dock from the mill. It's okay. not a huge, a huge railway. But... The Chicago and Northwestern Railroad decides that they're going to extend their track north from Green Bay and go right through Peshtigo on their way to Michigan okay. because the town is booming and they want to get on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all through spring and summer 1871, there are gangs of men in the woods clearing the way for the line. They're not starting to build the line yet. They're just like clearing the path where the track is going. So it's just okay. like surveyors and lumberjacks who are in there clearing, taking the trees down, clearing the brush. And making sure that they're running a straight line through the right direction. Okay. I would be hopeless. I'm you glad would be I was lost in the woods at this point. I would be lost in the woods and eaten by a bear. Fair enough. But these guys are obviously a little more professional. Well, they're working in crews, so they can't all right. be eaten by bears. <laughs> That's not enough bears to go around. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this seems like a good place to note, actually, that the people in here doing this kind of work, and this is rough labor. This yeah. is the rail workers, the lumberjacks, the factory workers, um, and the people trying to clear out farms, you know, which is just backbreaking. They're t- yeah. cutting down trees. They're digging out stumps using, like, their hands, hands and an yeah. axe yeah. and their 19 children to do it. <laughs> uh, some of these guys are American-born, but the majority are brand-new immigrants from Germany, Belgium, Sweden, and Norway, as yep. well as other countries. They're joined by Native American workers, and all of them are paid very, very little because you know, capitalism. So uh, there's also a lot of different tension between these groups and cultures. Obviously, there are language barriers. There are religion, different religions in town. And you got Lutherans working side by side with Catholics, dogs and cats living together. I know. It's just, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of tension. And the thing is, on these crews, that stuff would get taken pretty seriously. Like, I'm I'm not not joking. On crews like that, it would it wouldn't take much to start an argument to turn it into a fight. And religion is good at that sometimes. <laughs> of course, which again is not what Jesus would want. But exactly. It's actually, you still have that tension with the people who live in town and are like sure. slightly higher up towards the middle class. Um, there is a huge scandal when a white settler from Vermont named Abraham Place marries a Menemone woman named Elizabeth. So Abram owns land outside town, and he and Elizabeth are able to build a farmhouse in the woods and start clearing land. Okay. Uh, By 1871, they have a son, Henry. Okay. Although Abram is pretty soundly ostracized by the white people in town, 
he gets along great with his in-laws. Good. And uh, he and Henry and Elizabeth also have, like, her relatives staying with them at various times. Also, part of his house is a trading post. So he's, like, got his finger on the pulse of the community. Okay. He's slightly outside town. Nobody in town will speak to him. Sure. They don't attend church. Like, they're just... <laughs> right. Right. They're... Pariahs at this point. Yeah. Fair enough. We'll come back to the places. Okay. So despite all of this industry, the town of Peshtigo is still like in the woods, as we said before. There's just not a ton of cleared land around, and the forest starts right where the town ends. Okay. There are also fires in the forest all the time. The town kind of does what the Forest Service does now. They just only intervene if it looks like the fire is getting out of control or too close to a house or a barn. At this point, the town does have a fire department. Okay. Which consists of a horse and a... (laughs) Steam-powered pump engine. I'm sorry. I just thought you were going to leave it at a horse. No, they it's have a, a horse. fire department, which consists of a horse. It's a trained horse. He neighs if there's smoke. <laughs> um, and this, the horse and his engine are, I just, I love to picture like no people involved in this. It's just a horse trotting around with a bucket of water <laughs> on wheels behind him. So this, this horse and his fire engine are kept right next to the woodwork factory because that's what that's the important part of town fair enough all those matchsticks yep i feel like these matchsticks might come in uh come in <laughs> later in part of the story i should also probably mention that in 1871 the town of peshtigo is built almost entirely out of wood which makes sense because that's their closest natural resource sure i'm talking like timber frame houses with wooden shingles and wooden cladding full of wooden furniture But they're also using wood for their sidewalks, like their fences, their bridges, their boats, their wagons. And most of it's white pine. Oh, okay. Uh, So even the roads are covered with a couple inches of sawdust. (laughs) And the river is often full of logs, which are coming down from the logging camps upstream. Yep. So in 1871, that's also all extremely dry wood. So a normal winter drops about 12 inches of snow in the area. But the winter of 1870 yielded a grand total of one inch... And then after a few little showers in the spring and one brief rainfall on July 8th, which was described as a, quote, smart shower, there's no rain whatsoever. That's not good. No. One resident describes the end of September as, quote, the forests of pine were tinder, ready and anxious for suicide by fire. All nature was so dry and miserable that it cried out for death. Okay. End quote. Yeah, I love the drama. But... (laughs) That person was not wrong. That person was not wrong to talk about it that way. In September, there are a handful of small fires in the forest, one of which takes out the lone telegraph line. Uh-oh. Yeah. They're probably starting from the workers clearing the rail line because what they do is they chop the trees down. They send the logs off for processing. But the branches that they have to hack off and anything smaller than a tree that they have to cut down because it has to be clear cut for the rail line to come through. Right, right, right. They get rid of those things in bonfires. So they've been they've been taking all of this like essentially refuse wood and burning them in giant bonfires. And then they move off. They don't like stand there with buckets of sand and water to make sure the fire. So they don't monitor them at all. Move on down. No, why would you monitor it? It's the middle of the wilderness. Oh God. This, okay. In the driest year ever. Come on, why would you monitor it? Smoky Bear hasn't been invented yet. They don't know. Okay. So in early October, a few of Elizabeth Place's Menemone relatives come to the farm and warn her and Abram that there's a fire in the forest that is completely out of control. Okay. So this fire is big enough so that it has already burned a logging camp and a small settlement to the ground, as well as a ton of forest, as well as a ton of trees. And it's being driven east by a strong wind. They tell Abram and Elizabeth they're not going to be able to put it out. And all of them start working as hard as they can to save the place house. Okay. Abram has a well, a spring-fed well. They use that to pump water out to soak the house and cover it in wet blankets. Yep. Abram gets to work plowing as hard as he can. He plows the area around the house kind of in rings. Yeah, you're trying to create a fire ditch. Right. They dig a ditch that they hope will act as a fire break. They go down as far as they can to reach the moist earth underneath. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty far. That ground is very dry. I feel like I'm in like the second act of the horror movie where you've got the group together and they've, <laughs> they've discovered the monster's weakness. And if they can just... And then the roof caves in and they all die. They're making progress. <sighs> Samuel L. Jackson's about to get eaten by a shark. 
they're doing this because there's no other place to shelter. I mean, I'm sure, obviously, they love Abram and Elizabeth, and baby Henry is adorable, but they're doing this so that they can all kind of try and shelter there and survive the fire. Right. Okay. Again, the place house is a wooden house full of wood. Yeah. All right. So this brings us to the morning of Sunday, October 8th, 1871. Speaking of horror movies, the villagers begin their day by noticing something a little strange. Vast flocks of birds are leaving the forest by the thousands. Singing or squawking or anything. They just rise up out of the woods. These vast silent clouds of birds flying away east towards Lake Michigan. Okay. Right? Yep. Yep. (laughs) Hashtag ominous. Here comes the apocalypse. Here comes the apocalypse. Uh, Now, there's been smoke in the sky, and there's been, like, a hazy sky all summer. Right. Of course, the weather's super dry. People are used to these fires in the woods. And nobody gets particularly alarmed when the sky gets a little yellowish, the sun turns orange, and people's eyes start to get irritated that afternoon. Yeah. Like, I can't emphasize enough how not alarmed the people (laughs) in Peshtigo were. 200 laborers arrived to work on the railway project. Yeah. Right? Church services are held. The oh, Templar God. Drama Club holds rehearsals for their next performance, which is a moral spectacle called, quote, Ten Nights in a Bar Room. Okie doke. Yeah. Spoiler, it does not get performed. And people have a nice Sunday dinner, which is somewhat marred by the ash that keeps floating down from the sky. I'm remembering the Vesuvius episode now. <laughs> this is really, really Pompeii right here because no one is concerned even after the sun sets and they can see a red glow in the sky all around the town because God. there's very little wind. Like a couple uh, people who are like super cautious fill a bucket of water and keep it by the door. Sure. Uh, but nobody is panicking. I'm panicking. (laughs) I'm panicking for them, believe me. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. So there's a Catholic priest living in town named Father Peter Pernan. And around 7 p.m., this guy is, he's very eccentric. He's he's kind of delightful. Okay. Um, Around 7 p.m., the wind picks up and he starts smelling smoke and he starts to get a little worried. He walks next door to check on his neighbor and they walk to the edge of town to see if they can get a better look at the fire. Okay. This is where Father Pernan realizes that this is not a normal brush fire. I'm going to read you a passage from his autobiography. Okie doke. Quote, At one time, whilst we were still in the fields, the wind rose suddenly with more strength than it had yet displayed, and I perceived some old trunks of trees blaze out through without seeing around them any tokens of cinder or spark, just as if the wind had been a breath of fire, capable of kindling them into flame by its mere contact. On looking towards the west, whence the wind had persistently blown for hours past, I perceived above the dense cloud of smoke overhanging the earth a vivid red reflection of immense extent, and then suddenly struck on my ear, strangely audible in the preternatural silence reigning around, a distant roaring, yet muffled sound, announcing that the elements were in commotion somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Father Pernan goes home. (laughs) He drops off his neighbor. He goes home. He realizes that... He needs to make a decision here. And at first, he decides he's going to hunker down in his house. Okay. And then he thinks, maybe I'd better evacuate. This is a good decision. Yeah. He grabs the tabernacle, which is in his house for safekeeping while the church is under construction. He lets his horse, his dog, and his pet blue jay loose. He can't take them with him. 1871. We're fine. And he's worried. Okay. The blue jay probably survives. The blue jay, sure. All right, he makes a dash for the river hauling a wagon because the tabernacle is too heavy to carry. This is a wagon that would normally be on a horse. He okay. just hops it up and goes trying down the he street. He just grabs it. And, okay. Right. After he runs down the street, or as he runs down the street, the wind starts to blow in these huge gusts that feel almost like hurricane force. Yep. And that's the point when the fire jumps from the forest to the town. Yeah. The wooden town full of wooden things. Full of wooden, yes. Dry, dry wooden things. Okay. The matchstick town. (laughs) The matchstick town. This is immediately absolute chaos. So people are all running for the river or seeking shelter. There are animals running around loose. Families are getting separated. No one can really see anything because of the smoke. And it's also incredibly loud. So everyone who survives the fire describes it as a sound like a freight train and a hurricane combined. So it's just a roaring that you... It's so loud you can't hear anything else, and it makes your ears and your face go numb. God. When it arrives in town, the wildfire has grown into a firestorm. And that's a fire that's so big and hot, it creates its own wind system. Yeah. Yeah, firestorms are uh, are, are very interesting. They, um, 
you get a you get a stack effect where the original fire pulls in the surrounding air and then a low level jet stream starts to form you get an updraft mushroom inward winds develop around the fire feeding it basically you you get you get a fire cyclone it is horrifying it's completely apocalyptic yeah yeah and these things just to put them in perspective the diameter of a firestorm can reach 10,000 feet and the winds inside them can be going 120 miles an hour is easily Mm -hmm. and because you've got so much wind feeding it if anybody's ever worked with a bellows knowing how how that can superheat a a fire that is under control in a fireplace these fires can hit 2000 degrees fahrenheit easily and like that's enough at, to just turn least. a human being into ash yeah it's a very very hot very powerful yeah. fire um, and, it, and, and the wind that it generates incredibly fast yes it's incredibly yeah. powerful yeah yep. i mean and and the the peshtigo one jumped a river yes so mm-hmm. these are not ones where it's like oh I'll just get to the nearest body of water and I'll be fine. Yeah, you probably won't. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you can put out at this no, point. No, absolutely not. It's completely, even today, with everything no. that we have for fighting it fires. It needs to consume all available fuel. Like, you cannot put these out. You you could yeah. dump you could dump an ice storm on it and it would keep going. So the one witnessed in Peshtigo is actually moving behind a wall of fire that is about five miles long and it's wrapped around the whole town. And God. as you said... By the time it gets to Peshtigo, it's on both sides of the river. Yeah. So there's really no place to run. The fire tornado was as tall as a kilometer and several meters wide. Oh, God. And it was seen to pull up trees by the roots as it plows through the town. And the contemporary reports have it going a mile a minute, which is Uh, in an unpredictable path. Yeah. I I saw a source that said it was throwing rail cars and houses. Yep. God. Really powerful. You don't want to mess with a fire tornado. No. The news reports actually. Yeah. Uh, the news reports about Peshtigo talk about fireballs and fire clouds. These yep. are things that witnesses saw that made the fire seem to like jump from place to place. Oh. Um, it's probably a mix of flaming debris being flung around by this incredible wind yeah. and fuel reaching combustion point just on its own, just from being hot enough where it just oh, yeah. bursts into flame. Yeah, absolutely. Because remember, we're talking in excess of 2,000 degrees. Yep. Stuff next to it might just combust. So almost as soon as people in Peshtigo start oh to try God. and evacuate, the fire is it's on top suddenly of them it's on top of them. It's on both sides of the only bridge, which, of course, oh God. because this is Matchstick Town, it is wooden. Wooden made of wood. The yep. people trying to evacuate east crash into the people trying, trying to, evacuate to evacuate west, and the bridge collapses. Oh, God. There's just no time. No. And nobody has time. Even Father Pernan, who has probably the earliest warning of anyone in downtown Peshtigo, yeah. he's only able to make it as far as the river. Okay. Like, there's just no, there's no time. There's also just no place to escape to except the river. Right. And please remember that even though this is a firestorm and the air itself is hot enough to set your hair on fire, uh, the river is it's still also October. Cold. Yeah. Yeah, the yep. Peshtigo River is about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. It is deep, it has a strong current, and it's also full of burning logs, which are piled up waiting to go to the sawmill. So I'm guessing a lot of people drowned. It's also like the water level is lower than it than it would be normally. Okay, sure, sure, yep. That so makes Father Pernan <laughs> pushes his wagon into the mud and jumps in, jumps into the water along with several others. Just as the bridge collapses. So he can see from where he is in the water that the sawmill and the factory on either side of the river seem to explode. Oh, my God. And this is the point where the fire reaches the banks of the river. He's in the water with several other people. And the air immediately gets so hot they can barely breathe. Okay. They only survive because they start grabbing quilts and blankets that are washing down the river from the collapsed bridge because people were trying to escape with their household goods. Yeah. And they kind of like duck down and wet them every few seconds. Yep. And then put them over their heads so they can draw in enough air to breathe. Yep. In this 40 degree water. They have to do this for four hours until the fire passes and the ground cools down enough so that they can climb out of the river. So I'm guessing a lot of people drown in hypothermia and everything else. Yeah, because it's very cold and a lot of people don't know how to swim because why would you? Sure. 
you know, you live in a farm in the woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recreational swimming is not a thing at this time. And this water is, is, you don't want to be in it. It's an industrial river. It's full of logs. It's full of boats. Like, it's just not a place where you would learn how to swim unless you really wanted to. All right. So the firestorm takes about an hour to burn Peshtigo completely to the ground. And it burns so hot so quickly that almost nothing is left. Uh, the cast iron steam pump fire engine is melted. Okay. Uh, it was not pressed into service. Uh, not that it would have done anything not good. Not that it would have done any good, yeah. Uh, the bridge is gone. A lot of boats are burned after the logs in the river catch fire and start floating around. Uh, huge swaths of the forest are completely wiped away. Yeah. And it's important to realize, like when we talk about the destruction, it's not just downtown Peshtigo that gets wiped out. There are 17 nearby towns and settlements that are destroyed, yeah. along with dozens of logging camps. And the fire reaches other villages yeah. and does damage there. But in Peshtigo, under, unlike many of the smaller communities, there are survivors. So most of the people who survived the fire are in that swampy area on the east side of the river where Father Pernan was. Okay. A few people make it onto a barge in the river, which catches fire but is able to stay afloat. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, people survive in really strange ways. Uh, a farmer who had just cleared a field outside town dug a hole in the middle of his clearing and buried his family and the neighbors in the dirt with just their faces sticking up. And they all survived. Wow. A teenage boy jumps down a well holding his baby sister, and they are somehow able to stay afloat until the fire passes. Oh, my God. Um, These cases, these people are extremely lucky. Half the population of Peshtigo, which is over 800 people, dies that night in the fire. Yeah. So none of the survivors, even those who were uninjured, were in great shape. Yeah. A woman named Martha Kuhn survived the fire and wrote to her sister two days later on October 10th with the news that half of their family had died in the fire, their father and brothers, some of the in-laws, and many of their nieces and nephews. I won't read you the whole letter, even though it's short, because it's beyond horrible, and it's just clearly written by somebody in shock. But here's how she begins. Quote, There was a tornado of fire swept over the farming district and on Peshtigo village. It came on us very suddenly. Charlie and his family started to flee. They got about half a mile from home, When they went into a little pool of water, Charlie had the two children. Grace turned back into the water and was saved. In the water were brother William and his family, his wife and baby, and his wife's sister, and they were all that remained to tell the tale. Oh, Mary, it was truly a night of horror. It rained fire. The air was on fire. Some thought the last day had come. The heartbreaking part of the letter is she's trying to explain to her sister that everyone has died, and they don't know where the remains are right like she's talking about wanting to go back and look for people but she doesn't know where to look or even if she's likely to find anything yeah so outside town abram places house and uh his barn survive thanks to the wet blankets and the fire breaks that he and his in-laws had created uh yeah and it's not clear if the work that he and elizabeth's family did saved the place it was probably a mix of all that work plus luck because yeah. uh, some other farms in the area saw what he was doing and tried to do the same thing and were not successful. They were burned. Wow. Um, so at this point, Abram Place's house and barn are the only buildings left standing. In Peshtigo. In Peshtigo. Remember what I oh said? The neighbors God. didn't approve of the places? Yeah. <laughs> they got over that really quickly when it was the last building standing. One would and think. <laughs> the place farm becomes like a refugee center and a field hospital for hundreds of people who survived the fire with burns and injuries. Uh, Good for him. They need that space because after the fire was over, no one outside the immediate area really understood the scale of what had happened until days or weeks later. Right. So we talked earlier about the Great Chicago Fire, but the response to the Great Chicago Fire was just an outpouring of relief effort. So people across the U.S. hear about the Great Chicago Fire. They rush to donate clothes, food, medical care. They donate hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, I can't can't overemphasize how big of a story the Great Chicago Fire is at this time. But remember, Peshtigo, which is only 250 miles away from Chicago, is barely connected to the outside world. Their telegraph line is gone. Their river is full of debris. There's no rail line. And their roads are almost impassable. They have no idea that Chicago has had its own fire. Yeah. And when a guy finally makes it into Green Bay on horseback, he sends a telegram to the governor of Wisconsin, which reads, 
We are burning up. Send help. Jeez. The governor has already committed resources to relief in Chicago. Well, he doesn't understand the scale of the Peshtigo fire. And, you know, I can't. Yeah. You can't blame him as much. But I can't it's blame like, him come on, too man. hard because, like, they're so used to fires and brush fires at this time. That sure. a man comes stumbling into town. He says, oh, the whole town is wiped out. There's been a fire. Like, there's just no way to really get the evidence that. Sure. Like, there's no easy way to tell. Like, you can go to Chicago and look at what has yeah. happened there. You can't yeah. go to really. You can't easily go to Peshtigo and see what's What do you mean there. the town burned down? There is no town. Right? Because when you, when you start to describe it, it sounds yeah. like hyperbole. Like, there's no. Yeah. There's no framework, I guess, for this kind of disaster. Sure. Or this kind of, like, way to talk about a disaster. And, of course, without photographs, without, you know, telephone connections, yeah. uh, the governor isn't able to do much at this point. Okay. I guess that's the nicest way we can put it. Sure. Um, <laughs> the survivors who stay in Peshtigo, they are only able to get a fraction of the relief that Chicago does. Okay. Uh, as we said, the loss of property in Peshtigo is on par with the value of the damage in Chicago. Wow. Um, a far larger area was burned. Over half the population of the town dies the night of the fire. And in the days following, dozens more die of burns, hypothermia, drowning, renal yeah. failure, and dehydration. The little communities outside town suffer death tolls that are almost incomprehensible. So in some cases, whole towns don't have survivors. Yeah. Uh, then there are the loggers and the rail workers, most of whom are unskilled labor, camping in the woods, who are trapped inside the fire. Yep. And obviously, all the contemporary paper records are also burned up. And sure. some remains yeah. are never recovered or identified, which means that nobody really knows the exact death toll. Right. Contemporary historians estimate that it's probably between 2,000 and 2,500 fatalities, okay. which makes the Peshtigo fire by far the deadliest forest fire in American history. Yep. So as you can imagine, the survivors are horribly scarred by the fire, uh, physically and emotionally. Father Peter Perrin, our Blue Jay friend, yep. suffers from eye damage, brain damage, and nervous exhaustion, which I think is code for PTSD. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he goes on to write a memoir, which is a short and truly horrific read. Okay. Uh, oh, and he does manage, he goes back to Peshtigo. He goes away for medical care and then he comes back in a couple of days to help with not so much the rescue effort, but the trying effort. to, it's trying to give last rites and sure. interment services to the people who have family left to bury them. Wow. Well, yeah. Good, good man for coming back and doing that. That's important. Well, he also does manage to find his tabernacle, which he hey. rescued. It's floating in the river. Okay. Um, the tabernacle is still sealed. <laughs> so wow. the monstrance and the other things that are supposed to be in there, including the host, all still there. Wow. And yeah. undamaged? Unburned. It's floating. You can see it in the in the Peshtigo Fire Museum now. It's like a bright white little wood box and it's just floating around in the river. Wow. He's super happy to find it, obviously. Yeah. Okay, so the task of finding, identifying, and interring the dead is almost impossible, even after people finally start trickling in to help. The fire burns so hot for so long that there's just not a lot left to identify. Some people are identified by things like buttons and belt buckles. Wow. Uh, which again reminds me of Pompeii. Yeah. But another problem they run into is that with a transient population of whole families dying together, there's often nobody left to even attach a family name to the remains that would be recognizable. Right, right. There's nobody so with, left to identify. Which is a horrifying thought. I don't know why. It just creeps me out more than anything else. Sure. Okay, so with winter coming on and they just never get that much help, <laughs> it sounds like. Okay. They don't have... They don't have a ton of money. They don't have a ton of labor. And it's October, which is, you know, soon November. And the town is forced to make a mass grave to hold the 350 people that they have not been able to identify. Okay. And those are interred beside the Catholic Church. Whew. So it's a hard winter, followed by a spring where nothing is able to grow. They get all the all kinds of, like, weird insects and parasites and diseases. Sure. Sure. So no crops, nothing green. God. At the end of next summer, when it becomes clear that Peshtigo isn't really inhabitable, right. the state government kind of throws its hands up and offers survivors cash and free transportation. To, to leave. 
Yeah, to leave. Okay. Everybody gets $50. Everybody gets a free ride somewhere. Okay. Uh, and almost everyone in town takes them up on that. People don't start to come back to Peshtigo until the late 1870s. And huh. they kind of gradually rebuild the town into what it is today, which is like a nice little small town with about 3,000 people um, surrounded by dairy farms. They have a lot of fishing and hiking. And... Oh, they have a very robust fire department. <laughs> good. They That's upgraded good. from the horse. <laughs> uh, they also have a historical society and museum dedicated to the fire, which has just reopened after being closed due to COVID. And okay. the town motto, I don't know if you came across this, I is did not. the city rebuilt from ashes. They're just going right at it. I mean, dude, absolutely. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about this fire. I, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you? I mean, come on. If you're gonna, if you're gonna have, if that's your history, be proud. Yeah, it's almost like, like if you look at the town website, it's almost like nothing else happened since then. <laughs> like that okay. was their disaster, and since then life has been really great. Hey, you know what? Which good on you is not horrible. I, I kind of like it. There you go. So the Menemone Nation, like many other tribes, are also still living in the area. One of the frustrating threads to follow in researching this fire is really getting an understanding of how the fire affected not only the Menemone Reservation, which I believe was the closest reservation to Beshtigo, right? Uh, but the larger community of Native Americans living in the area at the time. And that would okay. include the people working in town and those on the logging camps, as well as their families. Right. In 2018, the Wisconsin State Senate finally honored the Menemone Nation for caring for the burn victims directly after the fire. <laughs> so that was for the days before the relief workers arrived. The only shelter and medical treatment locally available was at the Place Farm, yep. where Elizabeth Place's relatives and friends provided care to survivors. Uh, better, better late than never, I guess. Oh, well over a hundred years. Sure. They were finally like, thank you so much. Golly, I, thanks. Okay. It's better than never. All right. Uh, and finally, I wanted to mention that the Peshtigo fire is immortalized forever in what's called the Peshtigo paradigm. Yes. Have you heard uh, of this? Okay. So I hadn't, and, and then I looked it up. And I kind of wish I hadn't. So it's the exact combination of wind, ignition, fuel, and topography that result in a firestorm or a fire tornado. Yeah. So government and military scientists in both the UK and the US have been studying the Peshtigo paradigm for close to a century. And because humans are horrible, they yep. used it to design the allied bombings at the end of World War II, which resulted in man-made firestorms those are the ones that destroyed huge parts of Tokyo and Dresden. Yeah. Uh, so the fire that occurred in Dresden that Kurt Vonnegut wrote about in Slaughterhouse-Five is directly related in a weird way to the Peshtigo fire. Yeah. All right. We're better now. We're more evolved than that. So sure. since then, it's been used to – the Peshtigo paradigm has been used to predict the outbreaks and behavior of the big seasonal wildfires on the American West Coast, which we've seen a huge increase in these past couple of years. Okay. So that is the story of the worst wildfire in American history. Yowza. That's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, that one is that... – It's the scale. It's, it's the, the scale, scale of it. It's so it, much your, bigger. Your brain just sort of shies away from it. You're like – Right. It, it, it's too big. It's too big. There's too much of it. You read a letter like Martha Coons's letter and then you think there were probably dozens or hundreds of Martha Coons's who sat and witnessed half of their family dying. Yeah. And somehow survived that and were able to go on and were together enough to inform the rest of the family. You know, or the people who in the river treading water without knowing how to swim, wetting blankets to keep from bursting into flames and then dying of hypothermia. Like, and then slowly freezing to death. Yeah. Oh. There was a story about a man who found a baby on the road. Oh, God. He picks up the baby. He runs into the water. And he said he had to spend a few minutes trying to teach the baby how to swim, like how to like not try to breathe underwater. How to not just die, yeah. So he kept like pinching its nose shut and dunking it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they both survived. I mean, that is that is a crash course in in learning how not to drown. Yeah. Just the the survival stories are incredible, and then the stories of the people and cultures or whole families that were just wiped out at once. It's, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, it's a scale thing. I think people it's, don't it's know the about the Pesh to go fire because when you start to describe it, it just sounds fake. Or it just sounds too big to just comfortably think about. You start saying, oh, I think you got your numbers wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you What do you mean two and a half thousand people? That's too many. No fire is the size of Delaware. <laughs> it, yes, yes, exactly. Like you must have you must have moved a decimal point somewhere. Right. When I read that fire tornadoes could be a kilometer high, yeah. I was like, that can't be right. I'm That's gonna fact not check correct. that. Correct. It's totally correct. Yeah, three hundred people three hundred people died in the Great Chicago Fire. And we're talking like as many as ten times that. But because they got so wiped out there was nobody to tell the tell the tale. Well I think also, the setting has a big impact on that because Chicago is oh, sure, a huge yeah. city. Yeah, like people yeah, yeah. know Chicago. They've been there. They know someone who lives there. Peshtigo is pretty isolated at this time. Yeah. They have their famous woodwork factory, but that's really about it. You know, there's no, it's not a tourist spot. It's not a beauty spot. Nobody famous lives there. Yeah. And it's the factory is like just important, a little town. but it's not like, you know, famous. Right. Ugh. So that's a heavy one. Yeah. But thank you for sticking with me through <laughs> all of those little research threads. No, excellent, excellent, excellent. Thank you. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much, beloved listeners, for joining us on this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed that horrible story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? We're going out to sea. Uh, we're yes. going to meet up with the Dutch East India Company again. Again. Only this time, they're not the villains. Hmm. We are going to look at the horrific mutiny on the ship, the Batavia. This is something I've read about off and on over the years, and I am super excited to discuss this with you and hear what you think.